Welcome to Food Marketing Nerds, your weekly serving of marketing advice and industry insights with the smartest minds in the business. Here's your host, Alex Osterley. Hey, what is up, everybody? Joining us on the show today, we've got Lucinda Wright, co-founder and CEO of Cask and Kettle. If you aren't already familiar, Cask and Kettle is a company that is truly in a category of one. They make the first and only spiked coffee K-Cups, and they range from more traditional Irish coffee to their hot blonde coffee with vodka and even a spiked dry cider. Lucinda has an incredible depth of expertise in CPG. She was the VP of marketing for a small company named Kellogg's, where she helped build Raisin Bran and Nutrigrain into the powerhouse brands they are today. She's also worked with a number of similar household names before getting into consulting for, you guessed it, CPG brands. Lucinda has been putting her past experience to great use, from navigating the regulation-heavy spirits industry to borrowing big brand principles and executing with a lean startup mentality. We're discussing a lot of the do's and don'ts when it comes to breaking ground with an innovative product. And in today's episode, you'll learn how to perform big brand consumer research on a startup budget, why marketing your products to buyers may be the wrong approach, what to avoid when adding SKUs to your product line, and plenty more. So without further ado, Lucinda, welcome to the show. Thanks, happy to be here. So what's your story? What led you to founding Cast and Kettle? Well, I have a small problem with loving coffee to the extent that if it's not in my hand first thing in the morning, everybody worries. And then after coffee consumption's done, sort of late afternoon, we transition right into cocktails. So this is the blend of two of my most favorite things. So tell us a little bit more about the product itself. It's a little different than your usual spiked coffee. Yeah. So I have three other co-founders along with myself, and we all came together at a food and beverage consultancy, JPG Resources. And our role there was really to help people start up their companies, you know, realize their dreams and help young companies accelerate growth. So we always said, if we found the big idea, we would do it. And that's this idea. Everyone has the same love for these beverages I do. So we had the Keurig machine in the the office. I'm sure lots of people listening have in their home or in the office space. And we're having kind of a tough meeting. And I happen to say to the group, it's been going a heck of a lot better if the coffee we're drinking was more of an adult beverage. So that's where it started. And we started thinking through, okay, how could we we flip this? How could we create? something through the Keurig that would be a legit beverage. And because we come out of the food and beverage industry, we take taste and coming up with the best tasting product really seriously. So I don't know how familiar you are with K-Cup, but there's only 40 mLs in there. So in 40 mLs, we have a shot of diluted spirits, in some case, two different kinds, because this is a cocktail, plus concentrated coffee and different kinds of coffee. And we can talk about that. And then concentrated flavors. And it has to withstand being diluted through the brewing process and still deliver a great coffee experience, a great spirits experience, a great flavor experience so that people want to drink that first one and are looking forward to future drinks. So that's the product. We have four options for everyone to choose from. Iconic, iconic is an Irish coffee. So we launched with that first. Our inspiration was the Buena Vista Cafe in San Francisco. Have you been? I've never been. Okay. Well, I have. And let me tell you, they serve like a thousand Irish coffees a day. So we went there. I sat down. I was forced to drink two of them just in the spirit of research. And that was our aspirant. And what that means is Irish whiskey. Otherwise, you can't call it an Irish coffee. We also throw in a little bit of vodka just to take the rough edges off. We have a dark roast espresso coffee. 
a little bit of raw organic sugar because there's actually a cube of sugar uh, dropped into a traditional Irish coffee. When you brew it up, you add just that floater of cream on the top and it is a traditional Irish coffee. We get rave reviews from experts out of Irish pubs and people with Irish backgrounds. So we're proud of that. We also have a spike cider. It's the only non-coffee in the lineup. I live in Michigan. The company's based out of Michigan. Our distillery is in Temperance, Michigan. Does that strike a bell with you, Temperance, Michigan? I'm cheating because I we talked before, but beforehand it didn't. So for the <laughs> listeners, if it doesn't strike a bell, what was the significance of Temperance? Prohibition spun out of temperance, hence the temperance movement. So our distillery, our mixologist is in Temperance, Michigan. So we're, we're Michigan-based. We happen to grow a fair amount of apples and generate a lot of cider and hard cider in Michigan. So we use local Michigan hard cider, add to that some vodka, a little bit of cinnamon. And all of our drinks can be consumed hot or cold because it's liquid in the pot. I should have said that. A lot of people think we put powders or other yucky stuff like that. It's all liquid. So you can brew it or pop it over open, dump it in a cold water with some ice. Or I like mine only hot. But on the cider, I admit the team has kind of convinced me that it's super good cold as well. So tasty. And then we have a Mexican coffee with tequila, super smooth. I'm really happy with it. And that has a medium roast coffee. It's going to be a Colombian coffee, really acidic, bright, little Mexican chocolate on the back notes. And then we have a hot blonde, which you're drinking. That's right. But this has a dark roast coffee of a multi vanilla. So you know it's got vodka in it. Only so when you reach the end of the mug, you feel chilled out for sure. And you put a little cream in that, like we talked about. You get a boozy you know, latte. And then last, we're launching right now our mint patty. So if you like York peppermint patties, this is like a liquid one in your mouth. And so it's mint, it's a dark roast, and vodka in that one too. So that's what I'm having. We're uh, producing it next week, but I have the sample. So I'm having a mint patty. So there you go. That's the lineup. Our goal is that people who love spirits, who love coffee and or hard cider, really find it smooth, enjoyable, relaxing drinking experience. So what was the process of bringing this to market, given it's a really unique product? There aren't any other spiked coffee K-cups out there. So for the marketing nerds, my background is CPG. So I, I worked in Durable for Whirlpool. I spent 10 years at Kellogg's, launch of Nutrigrain bars on big brands, innovation, and Takashi Buy, moved to retail for six years, and then into consulting. So I've spent my... Other than you know Whirlpool and the Durable Goods, I spent the majority of my life in CPG branded marketing. And then, of course, my colleagues and I decided to be genius and launch into a category we weren't familiar with, which is spirit. And the spirits um, industry, a lot of it has to do with regulation. So I'm going to cut everyone some slack. But it is, uh, I would say, it, there's a really old school approach. Like we did consumer testing on the front end to make sure that while we love the idea, did other people love the idea? And I test to make sure every drink we launch that people like and want. And frankly, for those really marketing nerds out there, each one of them drives incremental volume and minimizes cannibalization. So it appeals to a different segment of the population and helps drive growth for us for the retailers, for our distributor partners. But in the spirits world, traditional new spirits are launched in bars and restaurants. And then they slowly make their way to grocery store, big box chain shelves. Well, we come out of CPG. We're a coffee-based 
company, we think of ourselves more as, you know, at home, which we are. We're at home consumption, much like everything else you buy at a grocery store. So we didn't realize it, but we launched in a totally different way than every other spirit out there launches. And that did cause some consternation and some confusion and some what the heck from our distributors. But yeah, we're in Walmart in four states and we're expanding. I'm hopefully, fingers crossed, hopefully we're going to do a deal with Sam's Club here. We've been in Safeway. We're in lots of really great independents, by the way, especially in the state of Colorado. It's not a chain market. So in some states, we're in a lot of really great independents. But we did go to market in an unusual way for a spirit. It was more kind of happenstance based on the product itself rather than we're intentionally going this route. No, we intentionally did because we didn't know. So since I've never worked in spirits, I didn't know what the rules were. We didn't know what they were. So we just behaved like we were helping anybody launch any food or beverage and went and did it how we've done it a million times over with the businesses that we've run. So it wasn't intentional that we rocked everyone's world, but most spirits are consumed on premise in bars and restaurants. So that's why people launch that way. Well, we're not really. It's not that we're not in some bars and restaurants, but we're really at home. We're at home, let the end of the day go or you know, have a great brunch on a weekend. What's been interesting to me is lots of companies even allow our kind of product in the office. So we're just unusual. We've, we've gone about it you know, in unusual ways because we don't know what the box is and the rules. So we just write new rules. What did the conversations with distributors early on, how did those conversations go? Was there a pushback to the direction? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So distributors would not take a sign. So legally, we can't sell without a distributor. I can't sell to a retailer or to you as a consumer. It's illegal. You have to have a distributor. And if you don't have a distributor, you have no business. And when we launched, we had to go to Washington and have um, regulations written around our launch because we were the first to market. And I think we still are even globally. So we had to go to Washington, sit down with them and have federal regulations written around us. And that sounds like a nightmare. Oh, it was. It was actually really surprisingly supportive of innovation. I was shocked. It was not fun. Took months, took months, months. And it still takes months every time we submit something new. But I have to say it wasn't the worst. But the distributors basically were, were either flat out no, wouldn't call us back. If you think about it, there's not a lot of disruptive innovation in spirits. Most innovation in spirits are a new shape bottle, a new size, a flavor, you know, that sort of thing. And then we come along and everyone's like, oh, look at the cute little thing. I mean, wow. I mean, and coffee is like the number one consumed beverage in the world. And they're acting like, oh, look at that cute little whatever. And we're also women-owned and operated. And less than 1% of the spirits companies are owned and operated by women. So that shakes it all up a little bit too. So what we had to do, frankly, in the early days... We had to go around and talk to large retailers, get them interested, and then go back to the distributors and say, Hey, XYZ big retailer is interested and wants us. And we had to hand it to them first. Really? Yeah. Except in places like Colorado, the states that don't have big chain businesses and are are driven by independents like Colorado, like Arkansas, like Oklahoma... We have a great distributor in Colorado and other states who are are smaller, frankly, and really innovative and have been excited. So where there are big chains and big distributors, it has been a huge battle. It's a huge battle for me every single day. And in the states where we have really innovative distributors, smaller distributors and independents, it's a lot more creative. 
So if a distributor says no, that doesn't necessarily end the process. You can potentially drive up some demand with actual retailers. What did you bring to the distributors to show there was, in fact, demand for your product? So we launched in Michigan in California. And in California, we were able to get Safeway NorCal to be interested in bringing us in for the holiday. That's how we broke through there. In Michigan, it's a control state, not to get too technical. So if the listeners don't know booze, the spirits world, some states control the alcohol and others let it be more the open market. So Michigan is a control state. And I frankly bet I happened to find a distributor, just happened to catch him answering his phone. And I flat out bagged and we're Michigan based. So that's how I got him to do it. I was just say, you know, we're Michigan based produced. So that's how we got the first two. And then we started to sell and develop sales. Anytime you start driving sales, it becomes a little bit easier. But I've been on a lot of businesses. I've worked and been responsible for a lot of categories. And I have to say that the spirits industry and a spirits launch is the hardest thing that we've ever experienced as, as founders. And we're not young, you know, not our first rodeo, not our 50th rodeo. We expect startups to be hard, but not this hard. I mean, literally, it feels like people hold your head underwater and just wait for you to drown and go away. So, you, you know, the key is in, in any of the you know marketing nerds out there will know this because it's really the key in running a business anyway. And that's just mental toughness, believing in your idea. If you believe in it and you have reason to believe consumers love it, want it, will buy it, then you can treat it like a marathon, push through the barriers, solve the problems and just be tough and tenacious. It's mostly the ability to tolerate pain or crappy situations. How long can you tolerate it? Well, we've been in a year and a half and I, you know, I had a tough call with our business our distributor in Arizona two hours ago where we're still dealing with issues out in California. I mean, it's all day, every day for me, for sure. We're a tiny startup, but we have a really awesome group of high-performing, excited, energetic people who all have expertise and believe in what we're doing and are there to lift everyone up every day. So there's no magic other than when you get the consumer response and someone says, I love it. Or you get a call from a salesperson, like we just launched in Arkansas and you know, sold 500 cases the first week. You know, so their excitement... Consumer reaction gets you enough fuel to get you through the next problem. Also, one of our other co-founders said to me at the beginning of this that we're at the end of our careers. All the co-founders, we're at the end of our careers. And we feel like the experiences that we've had throughout you know, our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s make it so that we, we can get through this kind of a startup. So being such a revolutionary or new and innovative product, what kind of education comes with that, even if it is a branch off of an existing idea like Cup? That's a really great question. And I am amazed. I just turned 58 a couple of weeks ago. And I am amazed at how much I still have to learn and drag myself up learning curves every single day, even after 30 plus years of being in big companies, running big businesses, little businesses, working in every category. And so you have to have a learning state of mind and absorb like a sponge. And you're right. You apply what you've learned in all those other experiences into a new circumstance, but you have to be agile enough to adapt to the new environment and still bring in new information. Now, in a lot of cases... Our experiences have really helped. Like I was talking to our Missouri distributor, very creative, and telling him my thoughts about how I wanted to approach this year. And to me, they were normal marketing things. 
normal. Let's do a consumer coupon. Let's do the sampling. Let's do normal things. And he said to me, you know, we've just never done any of these things. So to a CPG marketing person, these are foundational, basic things that to the spirits world is, holy cow, I might as well be bringing in an exotic animal from a zoo. I like to think we bring a little to the party But when you launch into something new, the impetus is on you to adapt to the circumstance. That doesn't mean I always accept the box as the box. I rarely do. I rarely accept that I have to be in a certain box. And we've been pretty successful in drawing new boxes and not accepting that we have to... These are just the rules. No, you know, they aren't necessarily. But there's some realities in spirits, state-by-state regs, federal regs, the way distributors operate, the way retailers approach it. And it is no joke, but seriously hard to educate consumers that a K-cup has booze plus coffee in it. I mean, it just rocks their world. It's been a really heavy educational barrier for us to overcome. Because some of them, people think it's a shot, so it's just booze, and you put it through and somehow add it to coffee. And, and so for a small startup, it is really hard to create an entire new emerging category on startup budgets. It's brutal. But on the other hand, we think we can. We just have to problem solve every day and, and push through. What marketing channels have you found to be the most effective at addressing that with a lower budget? What's interesting is you're allowed to do almost nothing in spirits. So some states will allow some direct-to-consumer coupons, not many. States will allow in-store sampling, but not now during COVID. Now, we're a pod and we know that sampling works for us. Like If we hand out pods in the store and people take it home and drink it, they come back and buy cartons. We know that because we, we have that going on in Illinois. We've done that in other states. So if the state allows us to do that, then giving people samples of pods to try definitely works. In paid media, so social media, that's a slow roll as you know, or probably a lot of listeners know when you're tiny, you have to spend a lot of time and energy to try to get enough critical mass to gain traction, to gain followers, to get the word out. And then since we have to sell state by state, there's no national launch. We have to sell state by state. So you have to buy media that way. And sometimes it's down to like for our Walmart stores, we're buying media in a 20 mile radius of each one of those stores or specific DMA. So I have to make tough business decisions every day about what we can afford to do and what's priority and tough decisions about what we should be doing, but we can't because, you know, cash flow is, is really tough on a startup. You know, it's tricky, but social media, sampling, some couponing, there isn't a lot else that some PR, although PR is not work at all. We could have a whole separate show about PR and the role for PR and how it works or does not work these days. So it's just being scrappy and doing what each area will frankly allow you to do. There's no one size fits all. It's a state by state issue where yeah, there are different decisions needing to be made on the state level. It's tough. The one thing I would add to it, though, especially for those who are listening in and the merchandising, because we have we carry the educational burden, what we have done, you know, we've made a lot of mistakes. What we did do well, because it comes right out of CPG, frankly, is floor displays, countertop displays, shelf talkers. We kill it on display because we on a floor display, you have a header and the header carries the message. It's like an in-store ad. 
So we have pushed really hard and our biggest successes have come from getting that floor display in the store. And sometimes it's in coffee, sometimes it's in booze, sometimes it's, you know, over in the deli bakery area. It doesn't really matter. There's not a legal place you have to have alcohol inside the store. Just you have to card everybody. You have to check for age. But that has been the biggest help. And now we have countertop display trays too with the header in the back. Most places aren't letting us put the shelf talkers up, which really is a pain. So for those you know folks out there, even if you weren't in spirits, but especially if you even remotely think you want to touch the spirits world, the merchandising support that you provide to the trade and as a billboard for consumer communication, critically important. And you kind of touched on one of my next questions, which is when it comes to the educational piece, that's not just for the consumers. How do you educate your distributors? And is there an element of educating at the trade level or in retail? Yes, for sure. There is. It is the number one job. Not surprising to you, your package is typically your number one communication vehicle for everybody. And we have five pods in a cart because we want it to mimic to be on shelf with spirits. So it's vertical. And it does, it's not enough real estate to communicate everything that you have to communicate. So yeah, we've had to develop sell sheets that help educate the distributors because they're your sales arm. They really, the success of your business is dependent on the success of the distributor. And then ultimately through the retailer to the consumer. There's a fair number of people in between you and the person that's buying your product. And so so it, it is our responsibility to help everyone in between be successful. Like our conversation earlier with our distributor, I said, and I mean it, we'll try to be the best partner, not supplier, yeah, vendor, whatever that you have. We want you to be successful, the retailer to be successful, because if you're not, we're not. So I'm all in on whatever creative ways programs or initiatives that you think are important to be successful, we want to be your partner in getting that done. So that's really what it is. It's a partnership more than anything else. And that doesn't happen outside of spirits. So if you're in just non-spirits food and beverage, sometimes you go through distributors and wholesalers, but you can go direct to consumers. We can't. It's illegal for us to sell online. If I could do that, oh my gosh, it would be a whole different world for me if I was allowed to do that. So it's a different path to market. The channels are are different. The responsibilities and priorities are different. We've had a PhD for sure in the last year and a half. So as far as merchandising goes and just getting a display or shelf talkers into grocery stores or independents, at what level in the relationship with the distributors where they're selling into, where does the convincing take place of we should get a, a display by the countertop? Well, what's interesting is independents. So what I mean by that are you know, locally owned stores, someone may have one or two or 10 or whatever, are different than big chains, you know, a Kroger, a Walmart, you know, a Target. Those are very different or a club store. The owners obviously can make all of those calls at the independent level. They decide that. At the chains, the buyers have some control over displays versus what goes to the shelf. But you also have, and I'm drawing my retail experience here, you have store operations. So some stores have what they call clean floor policies or clean store policies, meaning they won't put up a shelf talker. There isn't that. Or they don't allow displays to be on the floor. So it's retailer by retailer, but it still has to be negotiated through the buyer who controls that desk at the big chain. 
And then in the club side too, you have different formats. You have totally different packaging. You have different case configuration. You have... And in each of the club stores are different. They, they approach... Costco approaches things differently than Sam's Club, than BJ's does. They see it differently. They merchandise differently. So you have to develop displays and merchandising support and a selling environment that's flexible so that you can adapt depending on what the market will give you. Kind of going on a different tangent, but something super interesting that you had mentioned before the interview, taking into consideration when it comes to marketing, who the purchaser is versus who the user is. The misperception around casting kettle is that the user would skew female, but that doesn't necessarily seem to be the case. Yes. So my brothers and sisters in marketing, if they're listening, I'm sure this would be a very spirited debate. But early in my career, I was fortunate to work on a couple of brands. One was Nutrigrain bars. When I joined Kellogg's at the, the launch of Nutrigrain bars, you know that was my first brand. And I, I think it would surprise people to know that the target of those Nutrigrain bars was men, men who skip breakfast. It was a male-targeted brand. And then Raisin Brand too will will play this game because your your listeners won't know, so you can play along with it. But you know, what percent of consumption in Raisin Brand do you think is men versus women? I think you when we talked, your original guess was like sixty some percent. Do you remember what you said? Yeah, it was what I thought was high, but sixty percent. Yeah, and it's it's eighty five. So it's dominated, you know, men consumption is dominated by men. But on the purchaser side, what percent is, is male versus female for both of those brands? I think I said 70. And it's 90. I mean, it was. Now it's better now. It's slightly different now, but not much. That's wild. So yeah, so women do most of the shopping. But what I learned, and it's been so helpful to me because I just don't fall into this trap. I learned two things at Kellogg's. Here's one of them. And that is women buy what their family wants to eat. Nobody wants to buy stuff, get it home and have it sit there and have to be thrown away or worse, have everyone whine and complain about being forced to eat it. There are some women out there called gatekeepers who buy and, and there are rules around what people have to eat. But for the most part, women don't get a big charge out of buying something and having everyone be unhappy about it. So if men are the major consumers, then that's where I spent all my time. When I was on Raisin Brand and Shane Brown, I spent all of my day thinking about men because women are doing the shopping. So I have to get to them and say, hey, I mean, in fact, just think about the ads when you watch ads from now on and see who's featured in the ad versus what the voiceover is. So in a lot of, you know, Kellogg's, you will see men in the ad, men eating it or whatever, and women saying, hey, I'll get you. So there, when you buy media, you may have to let women know, hey, you know, your family wants this. Or the other tactic you take is you go right at men and you say, hey, make sure you request this. That's what kid slash male targeted marketing really is about. So that was one gift to me. I never, ever mistake consumers and purchasers. I never make that mistake. I know who I'm responsible for advocating for and making sure loves my product. And I, I don't mix that up. So we launched Cask and Cattle. We made this very clearly something that men would gravitate to, think it was a brand for them. Because the other thing that I learned at Kellogg's, I remember the toys that go in cereal. You know, we would watch groups with kids and adults. And what you find is you show them a toy or you, you know, show a brand to, to a guy 
or a woman and they will say that's something for boys or for girls. Boys will reject anything that they think is too feminine, too girl, whatever. Girls just roll with it. Girls will play with boys' toys. They'll drive cars that are targeted. I mean, women just roll with anything. I mean, they're shoppers. They're not buyers. So you can attract women, but men are big rejectors. Men will reject something that they think isn't for them. It wasn't developed with them in mind. So we were really careful to make sure that our brand, our drinks, because in the beverage category, men, whether it's juice, milk, pick, pick any any liquid. Men just drink more than women. They do. They are the heavier consumers. They are the core of the target. And you have to be really careful for those marketing nerds out there that you don't alienate. I had my own husband say to me the other day, he's a runner and he's buying these electrolytes. He's like, why is the marketing all women in like yoga, whatever? And I don't talk about this stuff with him, but he was a living example of what I just said. And he's like, I'm going to write to them and say like, what's up with this? I mean, is are men supposed to drink this or not drink this electrolyte thing. I'm like, well, they're just getting, they're getting confused between purchaser and consumer. And they think that everything is women because women do so much shopping. So how do you find that data? Like for Raisin Bran, for example, how did you determine that 90% of the people actually eating it were men versus the 75% of females purchasing? Two ways. So, you know, when you go to a retailer and they scan your product, it's called scan data. Well, there's big companies, IRI, Nielsen, that gather all that syndicated data and they have a panel. So they know, they know household level, they have household level. And then also when you're in a big company like a Kellogg or a Pepsi or a Coke or a General Mills, you, you run what's called usage and attitude studies. So you spend millions of dollars in consumer research to figure out who's eating what. So for instance, I haven't been in cereal now for a slug of time, but at one time we knew there were five boxes a cereal in an average pantry. And we knew like what role each one of them, you know, served. So the big companies have a lot of information about why you buy something, what your attitude is, what your value system is, why you eat it when. So Raisin Bran, for instance, not unusually, men tended to gravitate to that when they were going to have a rough day. Like it, it fills you up, it satiates you, it sticks to your ribs. So if you thought you're going to have a rough day and it was going to be a long day, you tended to reach for Raisin Bran before you'd reach for something else. So the CPG side of the world knows a lot. What I've discovered in the spirits world is not as much of that research is done. There's not a lot of quantitative testing like we did. Matter of fact, you know, most people don't even I have to explain it. We try to share that more broadly. It's much more focus group, much more qualitative than we're used to. So we we brought a little bit of science to the category. And so without the the seven figure budgets to run that research and maybe not the infrastructure to do so within the industry, how does a emerging brand get that information or can you get that same level? Yeah, let me help you. Okay, because I, I had to figure this all out when in, in JPG, I ran the marketing sales innovation strategy practices. And I will admit, it took me a long time to find an option for startup businesses that don't have a lot of money, but that need this kind of quantitative insight, not only for to be able to sell it to other people, but also to make good business decisions yourself. So like what new flavor should you want? I mean, you need to have some data to make the tough calls. Probably are other options. I'm not going to say this is the only option. But what we discovered was a company called Qualtrics. And it's a little DIY. They'll help you with it. But it's online concept testing. 
So all you do is you take your business idea and you, you basically do sort of like a print ad. And I can help out. Like if you know if anybody's listening to this and really wants to learn more, I'm ha- I'm happy to help. But this is very CPG concept testing. There are like four questions that relate to in market performance that are highly correlated to in market performance. And you ask those questions. You show the visual. There are norms. You have to hit top two box that it's at least sixty percent or higher. That's the number you've got to hit. Which, by the way, on this idea, highest numbers of anything I've ever seen. Which is another reason we launched it. Our top two box was eighty-seven to ninety-three percent. So if you own a Keurig and you drink spirits, eighty-seven to ninety-three percent top two box. Sixty is the hurdle you have to pass. We've only ever seen one idea in thirty years that was that high, and the JPG crew has their hands in in that business too. So it's doable. It only is a couple of grand. You know, after we brainstormed in that original meeting, one of the co-founders has an engineering background, and he said, "Luce, I think we can do this." I'm like, "Okay, you figure out how to do it, and then come back to me." And so, because it's technologically very difficult to to pull this off, so he came back to me and, and had it all duct taped up, and said he found a co-man like we think. We can do it. And the first check I wrote out of my checking account was to do this consumer research. I said, I am not like rating my retirement account and stepping out and making no salary for years unless this passes the validation we would tell every startup to do. So that's what we did. So if you've got between two and three thousand dollars, could probably even do it for less than Qualtrics concept test, get it validated. It also helps if you have to raise money. So if you're if you're going to raise money and you're going to go talk to investors and say, this is why you should do it. I mean, I don't know what I would have done. First of all, I wouldn't have done it without it. But then I feel 100% confident when we're in front of investors, 100% confident when we're in front of large retail chains or we have to make tough calls. We launched our Mint Patty. Well, we, you know, I tested five other ideas before we launched Mint Patty as our fifth flavor because I had to know, well, what one is going to generate the majority of sales without cannibalizing what we had? So I can't really fathom. And we would sacrifice spending in some other area before we sacrificed validating some of these business decisions. Just same thing on packaging. When you do the, the concept test, you're validating your packaging and your branding and your image and your promise and your lineup. It also help me hone in on flavors and marketing communication and how we talk about it. It's really invaluable. Well, this has been an incredibly insightful interview and I love the product. I can speak from personal experience and I think your experience definitely shows through and how you have grown and built the company in a, in a really smart way. So kudos to you for sure. And I'm very excited to see where the company goes. And in wrapping up, we have a, a couple questions that we ask each of our guests. And the first of which is, do you have any books that you'd recommend in terms of marketing or, or business? Yeah, absolutely. I'm reading Range. I'm not all the way through it, but are you familiar? with Range by David Epstein? Uh, No, but I I will be soon. It is fascinating, really. And I think really, really true to life. It matches my experiences for sure. I highly recommend Range by David Epstein. It's a New York Times bestseller. That doesn't always mean anything, by the way, to me, because that doesn't mean it's necessarily practical or or helpful, but that one's worth it. If you could go back and give yourself a piece of advice as you were when you started working at Kellogg, what would that piece of advice be? Trying to make a hard change from supply chain over to brand marketing. I went back to Michigan State, got my MBA to make that change, but I begged my way in and I had 12 months to prove myself or be fired. 
I had a four-year-old. My husband moved. We had 500 bucks to our name. I mean, it was not pretty. And they put me on the Nutrigrain bar launch because in those days, the convenience foods area was the small nowhere place versus cereal, right? So I was given like this dinky little, you know, launch in the armpit of the company to have 12 months to prove myself. And it was a godsend because it was innovation. I got my hands, you know, dirty in a cross-section thing I never would have gotten if I was put on a big brand and was a junior marketer assigned to, listen, go analyze just the packaging or whatever. So I got to see everything, do everything. It was incredible stress. But oh my gosh, my learning curve was accelerated by five years. So not because I was smart. It was nothing to do with like being bright and smart and calculated. It was more that I was considered like this ugly duckling that had to prove herself that ended up being such a gift. And that ties into range, by the way. When you read the book, you're going to remember me saying this. So again, not I can claim no credit. But over the course of my career, that did set me on a path. So I've done things that people thought were insane. When I left Kellogg's, everyone's like, you've lost your mind. When I went to the retailer side, I had an old boss who's like, again, you're, you're insane. But everything I've done has given me a greater line of sight, a breadth of experience I never would have had. I've traveled the world with Meyer. I worked for a global company. I traveled less than I did with Meyer. I've been all around the world setting up global sourcing. I mean, I had a bigger professional career career because of the choices I made. I mean, I was a vice president at Kellogg's. I went down to a director level at Meyer. So I've get, walked away from money, title to do new things, climb new mountains. And it has all been worth it for me. All been worth it. And that early, those early days at Kellogg's being in, you know, the basement of the building with like five other people on the Nutrigrain bar launch, which really set the category eventually, was just the first of many. And it gave me some bravery, I think, or proved that I could do things that it didn't look like I could do. Every time I made a move, my husband and I look at it and on paper, it looks like we're going to starve to death. That we can't afford for me to do it because we're literally going to starve to death. And every single time it has been and led us to a place that was better than where we were that's more exciting, that's more fun and interesting, including what I'm on now. Because, you know, we've raided all our money. I mean, if this thing goes down, and it's not only my money that I worry most about, we have family and friends and colleagues that put their money into our business. I feel that weight beyond what I can tell you. So could all on paper look like we're going to you know, starve to death again and, and worse, disappoint our family and friends and, and colleagues who, who trust in us. And that keeps me motivated every single day to succeed because I'm, I'm not going to let those people down. And so we push on. Well, I think your personal range and experience definitely speaks true to how this quality of the product is. And I think that Cass and Kettle has a really bright future. Thanks. I really appreciate that. So where can people go to learn more about the company, maybe get in touch or see what you have coming down the pipeline? Yeah. So CaskingCattleUSA.com is our website. There's a store locator that will pop up stores that are near you. If there isn't one, then wherever you buy spirits, go in and tell them you want them to order it in for you, assuming you're in a state that we're in. So if you're in a state we're not in, I'm sorry about that. We're working on it. And yeah, I mean, honestly, marketing, I am a marketing nerd. So anybody listen to this, if you have questions or I can be helpful to you. I really feel like my colleagues have helped me throughout the years. And I, I think it's important that we help each other. And if there's any way I can do so, I'm happy to do so. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time and your knowledge. And it's been a pleasure. Yeah, same here. Thanks for the opportunity. Have a great day, everyone. 
Well, that is all she wrote for today's episode. As always, thanks for tuning in. Lucinda is awesome and the product is great also. As a way of saying, hey, thanks for openly sharing a career's worth of knowledge for free. We hope you support all of our guests and the companies they represent. So if you've got a Keurig, enjoy a little imbibement from time to time and live in a place where cask and kettle is sold, keep an eye out. That's all I'm saying. Appreciate you hanging out with us and we will catch you all next week. Food Marketing Nerds is a production of Blue Bear Creative. For interview transcripts and other downloadable resources, head to foodmarketingnerds.com.